Well, it is all things. All things that He has purposed. And He applies those different ways to different people. All things including the greatest crime, the greatest tragedy that was ever perpetrated on anyone in the history of mankind, and that was the murder and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said, after uh, a long break, we're plunging back to the Gospel of Mark this morning, and you know we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And if there's anything that ought to fill our hearts with wonder, it's the story of Jesus, and that's that's what the Gospel of Mark is. It's one of the four historical records of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's it's mesmerizing. It's it fills you with wonder if you are if you're a believer. From the very first verse, in fact, Mark lays out his intention. Mark chapter one, verse one says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no hidden agenda. There's there's no undercover message. It's just a straightforward record of the message and work of the, of the Messiah. And Mark has one purpose, and that's to proclaim Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's good news for sinners. And in chapter 1, he, he is, his ministry is commissioned at his baptism. Jesus steps forward as a substitute for Israel in the wilderness... Jesus didn't need to be baptized and confess sins. He associates with Israel. His ministry is then inaugurated in the temptation. He's the last Adam. He's driven to a desolate place, successfully resisting the temptation of Satan. Jesus accomplished what Adam failed to do in in much worse conditions, much worse situation. His ministry is then launched as he begins to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom in Galilee. And he sends about the first year and a half preaching, calling God's people to repent and to, and to believe. And, and as he goes to Galilee, he travels around the, the cities and the towns, the towns that are there, and, and, he, and he begins to perform the signs of the, of the Messiah. He has the power to grant kingdom forgiveness. The first thing that he does, he heals a paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Not that your body is healed, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. He shows He can create new people out of old people, as He calls Matthew the tax collector. And in Mark chapter 3, He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's, the, he's God over the law. And, and ultimately, the Pharisees and the religious leaders begin to turn against Him. He chooses His twelve apostles so His message can multiply. He's then rejected as a false teacher by the scribes from Jerusalem. And he warns them about the unpardonable sin. In Mark chapter 4, he describes how his message is received because so many people are rejecting him. There's just a handful of followers. So he gives us the parable of the soils. And he explains how how evangelism takes place. It it unfolds slowly and people are not going to respond in, in mass. It's nothing wrong with the seed or the sower. The problem is the is the heart and... In Mark chapter 5, there's an increase in the magnitude of signs. He's, he's Lord over nature as the sea is stilled. He's Lord over the demonic realm as thousands of demons are cast into the swine. He's Lord over disease and death. And, and as Jairus's, or Jairus' daughter is, is raised, he, 
In Mark 6, the curtain then begins to fall on the Galilean ministry as he's rejected and rejected in Nazareth. And from that point forward, he's going to spend the next year preparing his disciples for his death and this journey to Jerusalem, which we are about ready to plunge into. He sends his twelve on their first mission, multiplying the message. Miracles continue to increase in proportion. 25,000 are fed with bread from heaven, showing he's greater than Moses. In Mark chapter 7, he goes outside of the promised land. He reveals he's the Savior of the Gentiles as he takes the disciples to Tyre and Sidon. And he preaches the gospel there. In Mark 8, he's formally rejected by the Pharisees. He formally rejects them and their generation that refused to believe in the face of so many signs. And then finally, the disciples confess him as the Christ, the Son of God in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus, immediately after Peter makes that statement on behalf of the group, immediately declares what that means, what it means to be the Christ. What will the Christ do? Everyone who follows him will deny themselves, die to themselves, and follow him to the cross because that's why he came. That's where he's going. And yet glory is going to follow suffering. What we look for is the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) This world is difficult, but glory follows suffering. So immediately after Jesus says that to the disciples, to die, to deny yourselves, follow him to the cross, he's transfigured before them, giving a preview of the glory that is coming. And he continues to teach them, and he marches toward the cross. And now here in Mark 10, we've come to the third and final preview of of his death in Mark chapter 10, 32 and 34. It's the page turner, as I said. He enters the final leg of his journey. He's told his disciples twice what awaits him and what awaits them. But now, in this passage, he gives the most detail that he's given up to this point. And he specifically tells them it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, I've thought about the excitement that people normally have whenever they travel to Jerusalem. You know, we have a trip coming up. And I'm anticipating that trip, and I know others are. And entering Jerusalem is one of the highlights of the trip of Israel. The first time I went, the driver, we were in the bus, and the driver was trudging up the hill. And, and about five minutes before you get to the city, he puts in this CD, and he begins to play it. You hear the, the song, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to your king. And the whole bus is singing this song, and it's so exciting. And then there's this sight when you come through the temple, uh, come through the, the uh, tunnel, and the view of the city opens up, and it, it's just, it's just breathtaking. It's a, it's a feeling of exhilaration. Well, that's not the feeling the disciples and some of the other followers that were with Jesus in this scene here have whenever he announces for the first time where they're going. They're going to Jerusalem. There was no bus. There was no singing. There was no rejoicing. In fact, there was bewilderment on behalf of the disciples and fear on behalf of some other followers that were there as they anticipated something was about to happen, although they don't know exactly what it is. And that's where we left off the the last time. So if you're not there, Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. Jesus is standing, or in this case, walking in verse 32 on the precipice of the last leg of his mission. He's just shown the way of true salvation to the rich young ruler who rejected it and 
Then he's told of the promise of spiritual riches to his disciples who have left all to follow him. And now he plunges into, sets his face like a flint toward the holy city. Now I want to show you how these verses come together because I'll give you an outline that, that really begins in verse 33, but you need to understand how it lays out. It will, it will be greatly helpful to you. There's an intro that describes how people... Or what Jesus is doing and how the people who are around him are responding to what he's doing. Then there's a prediction that Jesus makes of his passion. He foretells what's going to happen. And there are three parties or people mentioned and, and the parts that they're going to play. We'll give you what at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. First, Note, Jesus is out front. They're, they're on the road, they're going to Jerusalem, and Jesus is, is, is paving the way. He's out front. And I want you to notice next that there are two reactions to the work of Christ. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. He was out front. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. There are two groups there, as I'll show you whenever we get into the passage. There are two reactions to the work of Christ, what Jesus is doing. There's amazement, and then there's fear. And then he begins to foretell of the actors and the actions of his passion. Verse 33, Behold, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed or be delivered, I should say, to the chief priests and the scribes. There's the first group. And they will condemn him to death. This is what they'll do. And they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. There's the second group, the Gentiles. And then he specifically tells us what they're going to do. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And then there's the final one that we'll say for the end of the, of the sermon. So there's an intro Jesus is out front. There are two reactions to the work that, of Christ, what he's doing. And then there's a foretelling of the actors and the actions that they'll do. And then there's God's final outcome. So there are three preordained parts. If you don't want to write this that long, I would just write down three actors in the coming crucifixion. The three actors in the coming crucifixion. These are preordained parts. Jesus is foretelling what they're going to do. This is not a, a maybe so. This is exactly what's going to happen before it happens. And they play a role. There's the rejecting Jews in this first scene. They're the, the represented by the chief priests and the scribes. There's the ruling Gentiles, the ones that will kill him. And then there is the resurrected Christ. Let's look at the, the passage. There's the rejecting Jews. Verse 32 says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and he was walking ahead of them. The Lord has led his disciples all the way. He's led them after he called them in Galilee. They've never left his side. He's led them around Galilee. He's led them out of Galilee. He led them out of the promised land, back into the promised land. He led them to Perea. Judea, then Perea, now in Jericho, and now they begin the ascent up to Jerusalem. And you say going up to Jerusalem because it's about 3,300 feet in, in, in incline up to, up from Jericho. 
And there's two important things to see here. This is the first time Jesus has mentioned that as the destination. He's told them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered, and He's going to be crucified, and He's going to raise from the dead. But, but He hasn't told them yet it will be in Jerusalem. And He surely hasn't told them that's where we're headed, so this will happen. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus is out front walking ahead of the group. In the three previews of Mark that Jesus gives of his passion, in Mark 8.31, that's right after Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, Mark 9.31, right after the transfiguration, and then right here, after the rich young ruler, the resurrection is in all three, his death is in all three, and the Messianic title, the Son of Man, is in all three. But this is the only place that there's this much detail, and it's the only place where he tells them where he's going to die. It's, it's Mount Zion. It's the, it's the holy city. It's Jerusalem. It has to be there because that's where God has decided to meet man in the temple, at the mercy seat. It's Mount Moriah. It's where Abraham takes the promised one, Isaac, and he offers him, and God stays his hand, and God says, I will provide for myself a lamb. And, and here is the lamb. And he's come on the scene, and he has to go to Jerusalem. He goes to this place. It's the place where the Passover lambs are slain, and the Lamb of God will be slain there. So Jesus tells them this. And so that's shocking to them, because they didn't fully comprehend the mission yet, which is why Jesus is still teaching them. And it's to this place and to this end that Jesus is out front. He's ahead of them. He's pressing with tenacious resolve. And Mark is very specific here. Jesus is out front leading the way. That's the idea. Similar to what Luke says in Luke 9.51, when the time came, Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem. He's undeterred. Jesus was never dragged into Jerusalem against His will. He was never caught up in some political movement that he couldn't control like the, uh, the, the foolish book Bill O'Reilly wrote at one point that Jesus is, uh, the death of Jesus caught up somehow. I mean, he doesn't read his Bible, obviously, even though he claims to be a Christian because right here it's very clear Jesus is pressing towards Jerusalem despite what awaited for him, what waited for him. He moved toward it with determination so that those traveling with him noticed. And it says here that the disciples were amazed. They were, they were amazed. What were they amazed about? Jesus hasn't said anything to them. He hasn't said, uh, he hasn't given the prediction about his passion. They're just amazed because he's, he's out front. He's, he's pressing. He's, he's walking ahead. And, and the language is, is very specific here. There were others who followed who were fearful. There are two groups. The disciples had one reaction, and these travelers, those who were following along, probably to the Passover, had another. And the disciples were amazed at his determination. Now, normally, when, I mean, you, there, there's a couple words that's repeated over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Immediately, immediately, and, and then immediately, it's, you know, Mark's the speedy gospel. But then over and over, as you, as you remember and read, the, the disciples are continually amazed at what Jesus does and normally there's a reason given for why he why why they're amazed or it's very clear in the preceding context the context of pleasant when he feeds the you know the five thousand which which is actually about twenty five thousand they were amazed at all of the the fragments that they picked up when he heals the 
the deaf mute man. They were, they were astonished. They were amazed. I mean, you tell very clearly why they were amazed. But when you read this, he's on the road up, going up to Jerusalem and he is, he's walking with determined resolve and, and they're amazed. Why are, why are they amazed? He hasn't said anything to them yet. The word means bewildered. They're not amazed over a miracle, but it's his resolute focus. They, they, they don't know exactly what's going on, but they can tell something's going on. They notice he was out front of them, out in front of them, but he hasn't told them why. He, but there he is. He's out front. He's pulling the rest of them along in the wake of his resolve. It's, and it was baffling to them. The first words that ever came out of the mouth of Jesus in the New Testament was, I must be about my Father's business. Those are the first words that are recorded that Jesus ever spoke. And the last words that ever came out of his mouth before his death was, it is finished. He knew why he came, and he knew when he'd accomplished that purpose. He must be about the Father's business, and he knew when the Father's business was completed. And, and here he is moving toward that that goal. It was never a question where Jesus was heading in his mind. It was never a question where he was headed. He didn't discover his purpose or his destiny along the way. It was the purpose of his entire ministry before the Romans knew, before Judas knew, before the chief priests knew, before the disciples knew, before anybody knew. There was no, never a question where Jesus was headed. And there's never a question where Jesus is heading next. We're reading about something that's already taken place. And we're reading about it before it happened. But there's plenty more to come. And there's never a question about that. At least there shouldn't be in your mind. Jesus' return, judgment, heaven and hell, they're all going to happen. And He's leading the way with the same determination and the same resolve. Don't look around and see what you see in, in, in life or in earth and say, wow, something depends upon me or wow, everything's going to pot. So, so I wonder what Jesus is going to do. He is pressing and bringing this world to its appointed end in the same resolute, determined focus. And it will not fail. He will not fail. He does exactly what He says, and He will do exactly what He promised. Don't be shocked whenever, whenever that happens. His followers should follow Him even if they're unsure, and that's what's happening. And, but that's not what unbelievers do. There's a different reaction here. Mark also mentions these followers. As I said, those who followed were, were fearful. You might not be able to see that in your English, but it's very clear there are two different groups in the original. Mark mentions these followers. They're likely pilgrims who are on the way to Jerusalem for a holiday, for the holiday, for the Passover, and they're going for a different reason. They're not the twelve. Jesus, it clearly says next, He took the twelve aside. Aside from who? From what? From the rest of the group, from the followers. This group, the followers, uh, the pilgrims that are on the road are along for the, for the ride. And, and they could also tell something was going to happen. Why would they be fearful? Jesus says nothing to them in this passage at all. He only speaks and He only gives His prediction to the twelve. But He's out front and they can see it and they can sense something's going to happen, but they don't know what it is. And, and because of that, they're, they're fearful. They're, they're, un, they're just unsure. So they feared. It's, they're like the God-fearing man. Oh, I'm a God-fearing man. Are you? Great. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ is the question, not are you a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. It's wonderful to, 
to be that. But Satan also fears God, and Satan's not going to heaven. This group's like the God-fearing man who knows there's a God, and so, so they respect and they fear, but, but they're still on the outside. He has no relationship. That person has no relationship with Christ. And if you've never, if you, if you have never come to Christ as Lord, as Master, as God, turned to Him, repented of your sins, trusted in Him fully, what, well, all of those terms are used in the Bible. You are on the outside. He has no relationship with Christ or, or details, but they sense something is happening. These weren't mockers. They weren't scorners. They weren't like the, 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 the Pharisees and the others that rejected him and called him Beelzebub. These are people that are just going along for the way. Frankly, they're like the majority of people that you meet. They're just uninterested passerbys. They don't hate God or rail against Him. They're just unconcerned about who He is and what He did. But there are times that they get troubled. There are times that they get fearful. And then they go back to the rest of their life. And their fate, though, is no different than a scorner. Can you tell that there's something else, something more to this life? You ever asked that question and forgot about that question? Do you fear whenever you think about that? You should. But don't let it be only fear. Become a follower. Because He will share with you everything He's promised to do. Look at what Jesus does next. And again, it says... In verse 32, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. I love how the Bible just presents things that, that are unassuming, but whenever you begin to, to think about it and meditate on it and actually study the Word of God, there, there, there are nuggets there. He treats his followers and those on the outside very differently. He takes the twelve aside and begins to tell them what was going to happen to him. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. He foretells it before it ever happens. Now, those words cannot be said of anyone other than Jesus Christ. I don't care what nut job you see on TV or anywhere else that tells you, call this number, the psychic hotline or whatever, and they'll tell you what's going to happen. The only thing I can tell you is whatever was in your bank account is not going to be in your bank account, and you're going to be no better for it. The only person that could say exactly what Jesus says here is God. No one knows what's going to happen to them in the future except God, and He begins to tell them in detail what's going to happen. In fact, He knows, the fact that He knows is evidence that He is God. And the fact that you're told is an evidence that you're a believer. Spiritual knowledge is a privilege of being His follower. Do you know that? How do you view studying the Bible or being here this morning, listen to a sermon? He doesn't tell those who followed along. He tells the twelve. He calls people to follow Him and then He teaches them. Do you realize it's a privilege that you get to understand the Word of God. And then you get to understand it in detail every single Sunday. In your Sunday school classes in here, God takes you aside like the twelve and He tells you what's going to happen in His Word. And church is a place that you're pulled aside from the rest of the world 
And Jesus is telling you His plans as a friend. You see church like that? You should. It may change the way that you approach it. What He tells them then is beforehand, before it ever happens, and He tells them the first actors that are going to play a role. So look at verse 33. Here's the first actor of the rejecting Jews. He will be delivered. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him. They will betray Him. He's going to hand Him over. God is the one who delivers, according to the predetermined plan, but this group is going to condemn and betray. Now, these are the religious leaders of apostate Judaism. This is not all Jews, because the disciples were Jews, just like Jesus. But there are not very many Jews following him. The chief priests were the ones who controlled the temple and the worship system, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and they're the ones who he condemned when he attacks the temple and he turns over the money tables. And the scribes were the interpreters of the law, the ones who wrote the tradition and the entire mass leadership at this point will reject Jesus just like the prophets foretold. The Gospel of John says he came into his own and his own received him not. What will you do with him this morning? He's coming to you this morning in the same way. Will you reject him? If you see no need for, for an answer to your sin, you will. And the Bible says that they condemn him to death and reject him. The words are specific. The chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him. They'll hold a trial. They will, they will evaluate him like they've already been evaluating him, like Jesus has been putting himself before Israel as their Messiah with the signs that the Messiah would do the, 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 the blind see, the lame walk, the, the, the deaf hear, all of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. John the Baptist, the Elijah the forerunner that's going to come, prepare the people's heart for that. And Jesus has been presenting himself. They've come from Jerusalem, you remember, when he's in Galilee, and they condemn him there. This man, all of his works, it's the works of Beelzebub, the devil. They've already, they've already declared that. And they have been trying to take him down ever since. And now, at God's appointed time, when Jesus comes on his terms, they'll actually formally condemn him. They will hold a ruling council as the leaders of Israel, and they'll condemn him to death. They'll betray him. Why the word betray? Why the word to hand him over? It literally means to, to betray because he's the Jewish Messiah. He's the one who's supposed to come to them. And they're supposed to receive him, but they don't. They betray him. They condemn him. They reject him, just like the parable says. Whenever the, the landowner sends the, finally sends, sends the servants like the prophets, they kill the prophets. And whenever they, the landowner finally sends the son, they kill the son. And that's what they do here. But I want you to notice that they're not the ones who actually put him to death. They condemn and betray him. It's the first actor. The second actor, second actors, I should say, is the are the ruling Gentiles. They'll condemn him to death. 
They'll give the sentence, but they won't carry out the sentence. They'll hand him over to, to the Gentiles. And we'll see the despicable hypocrisy that they have when we get farther in the Gospel of Mark. They hand him over to the ruling Gentiles. These are the ones outside of Israel. These are the ones that don't care about God or His oracles or His law. They're not looking for the Messiah. So they don't condemn or reject the Messiah because they don't think there is a Messiah. They're, they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. And it's the same pattern. He, Jesus foretells the, the actor and their actions. The, the scribes and the, the Pharisees, or the scribes and the, uh, the, um, the, the chief priests. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to condemn to death and they'll hand him over. And then the second, the Gentiles, they will, They'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they'll scourge him and kill him. The actors are mentioned. And then what they'll do, just like before. And the Gentiles are going to do four things, Jesus tells. He foretells before it ever happens. This is right out of Isaiah 53. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to scourge him, and they're going to kill him. It's a scene of ridicule that builds in intensity. Watch it build. Mock, then they're, they're, they're going to deride, uh, they're going to spit on him and show disdain. Then they're going to scourge him, and then they're going to kill him. It builds in intensity. It starts when he is turned over as the king of the Jews. This is your king? Yeah, I'll show you what we're going to do to your king. They begin to mock him. You know the story? After he goes through the kangaroo courts and the trials of, of Caiaphas and others in the middle of the night, illegal trials, and they condemn him, they take him to, to the rulers of the Gentiles. And once he is finally determined that he's going to be crucified, then the soldiers mock him. They, they put a robe on him and a crown of thorns and put a staff in his hand, and they mock him. It means to ridicule. It's exactly what people do today with the word of Christ. He's not physically walking here, but that's what people do whenever Jesus is presented to them. It's what, what the Gentiles do, the Greeks do, 1 Corinthians says. Whenever they hear the gospel, it's foolishness to them. It's not a stumbling block like it is to, to the Jews. It's, a, it, it's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. It's, it's moronic. I need to believe in a man from 2,000 years ago who died on a cross to wash away my, sin, wash away my sins or I'm going to go to the inter, eternal barbecue. Right. I mean, that, that, do, do you not face that whenever people, when you share with them? Heaven and hell. How ridiculous. I mean, that's, that's for those novels where the little boy has a vision and he goes to heaven and he makes a couple million dollars about it when he never really went to heaven. He just probably had some bad cough syrup. They think, how ridiculous. How ridiculous hell. But there will be no mocking when you stand before the all-consuming fire of God and you're measured against his bar, and the books are open, and all of your works 
are laid bare before Him from beginning to end. Not only what you did, but what you failed to do and the iniquity and the rebellion in your heart. There won't be many mocking going on then. There won't be any mocking whenever another book is opened, which is the book of life. And when your name is not found written in the book of life, when you're cast into the lake of eternal fire, there will be no mocking then. It's foolishness to them. Be careful. Don't trample underfoot the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It deepens your judgment. Not only does it move from mocking, but they they spit on Him, it says. I can remember reading this for the first time in the Gospels about them spitting on Him. And about every time I read it, I would weep. Because it's just, it's something that you don't do to people. It, it's a, I can remember when, when one of my sons was a young boy and another boy spit on him. And he was so taken back that he came immediately to me and he said, what should I do? I want to punch him in the mouth. And my first response was, in my heart, you should have. <laughs> And he went back to him, and he confronted him, and the boy asked his forgiveness, which was a good thing. And the boy said he didn't mean to do it, so I don't know what happens between boys, whether it was intentional or whether it wasn't, but I was proud of the way my son handled it. This is not accidental. This is a universal sign of contempt. It's, it's what you do when you want to show derision when you want to show utter disrespect. I don't just mock you. I don't make fun of you. I spit on you. I don't just think you're foolish. I have no regard for you. That's what everyone does who rejects the gospel. That's what I did in my sin. And if I could eat the dirt that soaked up my saliva and put it back in my mouth, I would and I'd wash his feet with my tears. And I would plead with him once again and thank him once again for forgiving me of mocking him and rejecting him with my life. They don't just do that. They also scourge and kill, which go together. They'll mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Now, they go together because what Jesus is foretelling is His death will be by crucifixion. Scourging comes before crucifixion. They're not just going to scourge Him and kill Him that way. He is specifically predicting His crucifixion. He's declaring exactly how He would die. They'll kill me by crucifixion. These are horrible acts beyond description. The Jews would whip or scourge with a a three-lashed cord. The Romans added more cords and bits of bone and metal, and the whip is, as I'm sure you've heard before, it was so brutal that it took two men to do it. They would trade off because they would get tired of the scourging. They would be worn out of the process. And after that, then... He would be killed. 
One writer talked about the crucifixion and said, a death by crucifixion seems to include all the pain and that and death that that can be horribly and ghastly. There's dizziness, there's cramps, there's thirst, there's starvation, there's sleeplessness, there's fever, there's long continuous torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but stopping short of the point where the sufferer has the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure. Gradual gangrene begins to set in, although not complete. The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, become swollen oppressed with surcharged blood, and while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and a raging thirst and internal anxiety which made the prospect of death welcome. And Jesus knew every single detail, and He is out front with resolute determination pressing toward this point. And He's doing it for your sin. MacArthur said His suffering was personally planned by God as recorded in the Old Testament, personally known by Him in detail through His own omniscience. He knew every bit of it, and thus He lived in the anticipation of all this agony long before He ever experienced it. And He was on the road walking ahead of them. But the passage doesn't end there, does it? Look at what else he says. The third actor, there's an actor and there's an action, just like before. And they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. It's the same pattern. There's an actor and there's an action. But this actor is none other than Almighty God. It sounds almost matter-of-fact, doesn't it? Three days later, he'll rise again. When you read in the Gospels, the Gospels don't go through all of that detail that I did in the, in the physical aspects of crucifixion. It's not like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ where it's all this blood and gore, although all that happened. But the Gospels don't focus on that. It just says, and he came to the hill, and they crucified him. Because the point is not the physical. The point is the wrath of God being poured out when the Father turns His back on the Son when He was, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. That's the significance of the cross. And here in the resurrection, He will rise. It's, it, there's no bright light. There's no you know, fanciful drama about everything that's going to happen, he will rise. Just just matter of fact. Before it ever happened. Because this is the final outcome of Jesus' mission. There's no question about it. There's no struggle in it. It was not just to die, but to rise. That's why Jesus came. It's, it's the final outcome. He 
that he was going to bring about in his mission, at least on his first coming. And that's also the final outcome he has for all those that have come to him in faith and repentance. Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, Destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> I think those words just just go in one ear and out the other. We, we, don't, we don't feel the significance of that because we hear them all the time. Three days later, he'll rise again. He arose. Praise the Lord. We, we sing that on Easter, and, and I'm thankful. But think about it. Matter-of-factly, a dead lifeless body comes back to life. He said he would die, he said he would rise, and he did. And the rejecting Jews did not credit, discredit him. He was still the Messiah, even though his people, a lot of his people turned away. The ruling Gentiles didn't stop him. Death has no power over him. He is triumphantly exalted as king over all because he will rise. And that's what the Bible declares. The way that you know Jesus Christ was not just a good teacher. The way that you know Jesus Christ was not a heretic. The way that you know Jesus Christ was the Son of God is the resurrection. He raises from the dead. And those who believe His message and put their trust in Him, will conquer all those things as well. Jesus is out front in your life right now. He's out ahead with resolute determination, completing the work that He began in your heart. He who began a good work in you will continue, will perform it. He's going before you every single step of the way. He's pulling you along in that resolute determination. He will bring you to His appointed end because you're His. It's His work. He'll continue that work. And you are going to face difficulty. You're going to face, as His followers, mocking and rejection. Some of His followers will face death. Some even death by crucifixion. You'll be mocked. You'll be... You'll be treated with disdain and contempt. But that's not the end of, of your, your mission as a Christian. Where does it all end? All of that's going to happen. Where does it end? It, this world is not the end. It ends with the resurrection. And because He rose from the dead, He will bring your vile body up out of the ground as well and will change it. And He'll do that in the same effortless way, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And between when your body rises from the dead, probably won't be three days. It could if that's the way the math works out. But between the fact that when your body lays in the ground and, and it is raised, when you're absent from that body, the Bible says you're immediately present with the Lord. And that's very different from those who are just unconcerned or unaware, I should say, walking along through life. Because to be absent from your body is to be separated in hell. He's the forerunner and the first fruits, And He'll bring you along to the new heavens and the new earth. Won't you bow your heads with me?
Oh, church, He goes before us. And you say this morning, I need Him to go before me. Oh, I need Him. I do too. I am so thankful that He is out walking ahead. I feel like Moses. Lord, if You will not go before me, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to go. We might as well not go. And this morning, He's reminding you that whatever you're facing, He is in front of you, not behind you, not lagging you. You never have to say, hey, hey, Jesus, look what's going on in my life. Would you come and give attention to this? He's, he's in front of every step. He sees everything. And He tells His friends all things. You have a blessed privilege to being on the inside. And from His Word, He tells you what's going to happen to build your faith and to strengthen you and to give you what you need for the journey. And if you're here and you're outside, you have enough knowledge to be unsettled and you have enough knowledge to fear, but you, have, you don't have enough knowledge to, to remove that. And this morning, when Jesus calls to you, come to Me. I'll give you rest. I'll forgive your sin. But you'll come my way. I'm God. And beside me there is no other. You have no hope outside of me. And you're going to perish in your sin. But if you come, I'll wash you clean. I'll make you one of my followers. And I will bring you to your appointed end, which is heaven. But you bow the knee and come. And the final outcome, church, that we all look for is we'll rise with Him on that last day. And that's why we look forward with hope. And that's why this world has no hold on us. Does it have a hold on you? If it has its hooks in you, if you have anxiety and fear and otherwise and you're not paying attention, you've taken your eyes off the hope, which is heaven. It's not here.